Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the NSAC Coffee Hour interview series. In this interview series, we hope to learn from a broad range of people closely associated with STEM PhD life. Professors, scientists, alumni, staff, administrators, and others. The goal is to get to know the fascinating journeys, stories, and experiences that got these people where they are today. This week, we had the wonderful experience of interviewing Bill Rowe, a research engineer working in the Burke Nanotechnology Center at Purdue University. His life has spanned a number of types of jobs from being in the Army National Guard to working at AC Delco Electronics, helping to found Tau Laboratories, and then joining the academic world as a research engineer. So without further delay, here's the interview. Bill has three distinct battle paths in his journey so far. Made working in the industry or being in the military or being, in a, being at a university like Purdue. So let's delve deep into each of these details. So Bill, could you walk us through your professional journey so far from 1969 to how it led you to be at Purdue here with us? Sure, be glad to. Uh, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today. It's a pleasure. I enjoy working with the NSAC team. Uh, my work started at Jocelyn Stainless Steel in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, uh, I was a clerk there, an inventory control clerk, and it was my duty and goal to try and save them as much money as possible on uh, the inventory of steel that we had. And uh, it was an interesting place to work, uh, a lot of heavy industry and things going on, but uh, also that's when I first became very aware of safety in the workplace. Uh, my first day on the job, I walked by a large 55-gallon barrel that had a tattered flannel shirt in it. And I said to the person, oh, it looks like somebody decided to uh, uh, throw their old shirt away. And they go, no, there was an accident here last night. And I go, well, what do you mean? Uh, one of the operators uh, wasn't paying attention and uh, he was using big tongs to grab uh, uh, rod, which was red hot. And uh, he was supposed to run it through the sizing uh, machine and it would roll it down to a smaller size and uh, someone on the other side would catch it, roll it over to the next one, shove it through and then he would catch it. Uh, what happened, one of the uh, blocks dropped down and he shoved it in there and turned to talk to the person next to him and the rod came back and burnt through his throat, through his chest, through his stomach. Uh, burnt his uh, uh, private parts off and uh, I was there for nine months before I left for my basic training in the army and he was still not out of the hospital yet after nine months. He was alive but uh, made me very aware of the dangers. Uh, also at that stainless steel plant uh, we had uh, uh, three furnaces, we had uh, two gas furnaces and a uh, electric furnace and uh, those were basically big huge vessels. Uh, the gas never made that much noise but the electric furnace had uh, three huge electrodes where they would lower with a crane those electrodes down into this vessel that had all the steel and material in there that they were going to melt to create uh, uh, whatever stainless steel types they wanted. 
And uh, just from those electrodes and all the high current going through that, you would hear these explosions throughout the mill as this is uh, melting all this cold metal. Uh, unfortunately, uh, one of our electricians at the time, uh, about halfway through my tenure there, uh, was working on that and uh, he was electrocuted. Uh, several thousand amps went through him and uh, he died right there on the spot. So uh, again, that was just a, a reminder to me about safety in the workplace, but it was an interesting place to work, but uh, also very dangerous. Uh, when I got was in the Army going through my basic training, I got a notice that there had been a downturn in the steel industry and uh, I wouldn't have a job to return to. Uh, so I applied when I got back to uh, Delco Electronics in Kokomo and uh, I about a week later I got a reply and they wanted me to come in for an interview and uh, I was uh, uh, chosen to go into their data processing area. And uh, uh, back then, uh, it seems like the Stone Age now, but uh, uh, started off with some high-end equipment at the time, the IBM 11, uh, IBM 370s. We had two of those and uh, we worked in teams. There were three people for each system and uh, one person would run the console one week, another person would go to the vault and pull uh, tapes and hard disk packs and the other person would load high-speed printers up with whatever paper was needed at the time. So we had uh, 16 hard drives, 16 tape drives, and we had uh, eight high-speed printers. So it kept you busy uh, your entire shift. Uh, a couple of years into that, uh, an opening came up uh, at our research and engineering plant at Delco Electronics, also located in Kokomo and uh, they needed someone who knew Fortran programming. And from my uh, schooling at Purdue, I had learned Fortran. And uh, so I was chosen to go there. And uh, the machine there was an IBM 1130. And that was not as quite as high tech as the IBM 370s. But uh, I was told by the IBM uh, service rep that we had the largest IBM 1130 in the country and it had 32K of memory. Of course, most people's watches now have more than 32K of memory, and a lot of toys have more than 32K of memory, but uh, back then that was sort of state-of-the-art equipment. And uh, then in uh, about 1974 then, an opening came up in the photo mass shop, and I had been doing work in the data processing area at the research and engineering building, which also housed the uh, photomass shop. Uh, and I was loading data in and plotting out huge plots on a very large uh, flatbed plotter of uh, circuit designs. Uh, once the engineers, they would take the, those plots, paste them up on the walls, and they would try circuit tracing on the walls. And that's uh, much different today, of course. But uh, back then, everything was pretty much done by hand. Uh, once they approved the design, then I would have to take large rolls of rubylith, which is clear plastic with a red or orange coating on it, and replace the pens with knives. It would then go through and, and cut that uh, circuit design, 
and then we would take it off there and it would go upstairs to the mass shop and they would pull out parts of the design so they'd have clear areas and dark areas. And uh, so they decided uh, that they really needed someone else up there and they'd like to have me. So uh, I left the data processing then and went to the photomass department. And uh, it was a, a, a very good learning experience there, some good people to work with. Uh, there were eight of us in the department, including our supervisor. And uh, it was a very close knit group of people and we worked two shifts. Uh, and we dealt with primarily supplying photomass for the uh, different groups at Delco Electronics. Uh, they had a pilot line, they had the research and development facility, and then they also had the production lines. Uh, one of the things that uh, always sort of baffled me, but they uh, remedied uh, down the road, was uh, each group there had different pieces of equipment. And so we would make a we take a design and make photomass for the research and development group. Once they decided that yes, they want to go on to the pilot line with this, we'd have to remake everything for the particular tool set that the pilot line had. Once the pilot line then uh, determined that this was a, uh, they could make this work and in a production facility, then uh, we had to remake for a third time the design for the tool set that production had. And so we were always generating uh, revisions of these designs and things like that. Uh, one of the interesting things that happened while we were there uh, was uh, cars started getting uh, cruise controls, which we all sort of take cruise controls for granted right now. But uh, uh, Delco did not have the capacity to build all the cruise controls that were needed for General Motors, the, the circuits and all. So they contracted with Motorola for half of them also. Uh, before these circuits actually go, went into production, they had to have life testing and all kinds of testing done at the research and engineering plant and in order to go on to production. Uh, once uh, they started making these cruise controls and installing them in the uh, GM cars and some Ford cars, also we contracted with Ford, um, there was a problem with some Cadillacs where uh, the Cadillac owner would pull up at, say, a toll booth back then, and they would have to put money in the toll booth. So, of course, you uh, come rolling to a stop, dig your change out, and put it into the uh, uh, toll booth and uh, then take your foot off the brake and uh, the car then immediately thought you should be going 65 or 70 miles an hour so it would burn rubber out of the uh, uh, toll booth and uh, scare some people half to death so uh, then it became a problem as trying to identify which chip was in this particular these particular Cadillacs was it Delco chips or was it Motorola chips? And so there was a lot of investigating going on and they found it was Motorola chips were the problem. Then they had to uh, determine, how do you determine which Cadillac has what chip in it? So uh, this was sort of leading up to uh, how things go now where you, every car that has all these parts 
they know exactly where they came from and what revisions they were, things like that. Uh, back then, it was just new to everybody and uh, was uh, difficult to, to tell. But, uh, but uh, anyways, then uh, uh, at work, uh, we uh, were approached uh, by a entrepreneur, uh, Dr. Raymond Aoyang, and he was a, a researcher at uh, IBM at their Poughkeepsie plant. And he uh, always was very business oriented. And uh, he was selling photomass blanks to us and other photomass suppliers. But uh, where he sort of got his start, and, and this might apply to any one of a number of you young people, that are going to be researchers or, or scientists or, or uh, professors and maybe wanting to start your own business. Uh, he noticed that uh, he could thought he could uh, talk to IBM and see if they would give him all their sputtering equipment and let him hire people and maintain the equipment and sell them their photomass blanks at cost and then whatever time he had available on the tools, he could uh, uh, build photomass blanks for sale on the outside. Uh, he also did this uh, with IBM for their die sort operation also. He uh, approached them and said, I've got a deal for you. What if you give me all your die sort equipment? I'll hire the people, train them, and I'll buy a building to put all this in, and uh, we'll do all your die sort operation for you for cost and then we can do other die sorts for other companies if needed and he ended up buying an old grocery store <clears throat> and converting it and putting all the <clears throat> die sort equipment in there and uh, so that was sort of his entrepreneurial uh, thought and that and so uh, he was coming to us to sell us photomass blanks and he found out then at the time that technology was progressing and Delco Electronics uh, uh, was going to have to, in addition to the optical equipment, like in the poster here, the Electromass stepper, uh, we had uh, three steppers, uh, two Electromask, one GCA 3696, and we had two optical pattern generators. Uh, they found that they needed to go to smaller feature sizes than what those machines were capable of. And uh, so they were going to have to buy an E-beam. He approached Delco Electronics and said, hey, I've got a deal for you. Why don't you buy the E-beam, give it to me, and I'll build a facility. We'll put it in the facility. I'll staff it with people and I'll give you all your photomass and everything at cost. And then when we're not using the E-beam, we can use it to write for the outside. And uh, so uh, Delco Electronics thought that was a great deal. Uh, they didn't have any location at any one of their uh, many plants that they had in Kokomo, Indiana that was capable of housing an electron beam. So they were going to have to build a new facility. So uh, Dr. Ao Yang uh, invited us, the department, to join Tau Laboratories, is what we named it. And uh, the eight of us left Delco Electronics to start up Tau Laboratories. 
so the building was constructed. It was about two miles away from the Delco Electronics main plants. And uh, uh, the optical equipment all came also. They gave us all the optical equipment. So we had to start up and uh, seamlessly use the optical equipment to continue the supply of tooling for Delco. Uh, then once we got the E-beam and got it up and running and uh, people trained on it, myself also I was trained on it, and it was called a MEBUS, a Manufacturing Electron Beam System made by Perkin Elmer. Uh, they're not made anymore, but uh, we ended up uh, just with one machine to start with. And uh, back then, E-beams were more expensive than they are right now. And uh, these machines are not near as capable as anything we have right now. But uh, it was about $4 million. And uh, so we gradually tried to work that into. Well, let me ask uh, you a question right there. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that uh, in your initial days, you saw uh, major safety mishaps. You actually saw somebody getting electrocuted. Did that in any way make you wary of heavy electronics or heavy equipment? Uh, no, just made me very wary <laughs> of working on electronics. Okay. Yes, uh, especially okay. the high voltage stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I it's uh, it was rather sad at the time that because uh, he had a family also and uh, mm -hmm. it was very sad, but uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, also, um, so were you ever in two minds about your decision to start a new company with your peers, like leaving a secure job behind and starting a new venture? Did that uh, ever occur to you that it might not go the way you would want it to? Uh, that's a good question, Swati. Yes, and uh, we were very lucky in that uh, Delco Electronics said, look, here's what we'll do. We'll give you a safety net. If any of you eight people uh, want to come back to Delco Electronics at any time within the next year, you can come back, no questions asked. Uh, your seniority will be restored and you will have a job. Okay. Uh, so that was uh, uh, rather unusual, but uh, uh -huh. we were very thankful for that safety net. Uh, none of the eight of us returned to Delco Electronics. We all stayed uh, with the Tau Laboratories. Tau yeah, and uh, uh, they were also very good that uh, uh, while we were transitioning, they were allowing us to bring some of the new employees into Delco Electronics mm -hmm. and train them. So when we got completely moved, we would be able to hit the ground running. Mm -hmm. So we sort of grew from the eight people mm -hmm. to I believe the highest uh, number of employees we had at our place was about 150 employees. Okay. But uh, uh, it was uh, very interesting, a lot of hard work. Uh, but today, even when I bump into some of the former employees, uh, they always have the same thing to say. They uh, say it was the best job they'd ever had, mm -hmm. uh, even though they're in different careers now. But uh, one of a couple of the things that, that uh, maybe keep in mind, you know, if you're going out starting a company in that, was that uh, uh, we always had goals in the business and uh, to quality and uh, performance and delivery. 
and uh, we uh, we also had an emphasis uh, on safety also. Uh, the photo mask industry is not as hazardous as the, the wafer fabs and that. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the hazardous gases and, and we had some sulfuric acid and, and hydrochloric acid and chromic acid and things like that, but uh, not no BOE, no uh, HF. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, so so it was pretty uh, not as safe. Uh, you know, I mean, still dangerous, but uh, uh, we even had uh, one of our employees who was probably the uh, most capable chemistry person uh, bringing in some uh, sulfuric acid one time and the bottle slipped from her hand and we didn't have double <laughs> containment and it broke on the floor. And uh, so the first thing she did was reach for wipes and threw the wipes on the sulfuric acid. Mm -hmm. So they start turning brown, start crumpling up and start smoking. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a fire. <laughs> and she just panicked. But uh, so I guess that uh, always embedded in me that uh, in panic situations, even though you know what you're doing, the right thing to do, you may panic and not do the right thing. Okay, so yeah. uh, I always sort of worry about that here with uh, HF and BOE exposures too. We know what to do, uh, but uh, you know it can be very hazardous. I mean, we are giving we are giving very extensive trainings how to deal with HF or BOE exposures and. All of them are accompanied with horrifyingly gruesome pictures. If you're not careful, you could be this person. Yes, <laughs> yes, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. But so, uh, Bill, uh, one more question. Uh, sure. So you mentioned um, from eight people, you grew to about 150 people. So did that change the nature of the company from knowing each and every one of your employees to having new people in your fold? Uh, yes, there was a lot of training going on. And uh, for me, starting out, uh, I had to train new operators. I had to train new engineers. Uh, I had to maintain equipment and things like that. So I uh, got to do a variety of things. Uh, along the way, uh, uh, we did some work with Purdue University and there was a young uh, fellow at Purdue that would come over to our place from time to time and uh, pick up some work and, and that. Uh, his, his name was Tim Miller. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay. so back when I joined here, you know, there's Tim We're working together again. Uh -huh. And uh, also another person, uh, Mark Voris, was hired mm -hmm. and uh, he was working one evening after he had been trained on a piece of equipment and he dropped a bunch of glass off the back of the machine and it broke and he thought mm -hmm. for sure he was going to get fired. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's nice and to know that. Uh, the current experienced work staff also made mistakes once upon a time. Yes. <laughs> uh, also, while we were at Delco Electronics and for a little while at Tau Laboratories Net, we uh, uh, dealt with another person, some of you may remember, John Weaver. And uh, he uh, uh, was doing some designs at Delco Electronics, so we worked with him. And then he got pulled off to design their new wafer fab. And he also then had a lot of input uh, uh, with Burke Technology, Burke plant here. So uh, John you know, was, was very good at uh, design and layout and very much into the facility end of things. But uh, so, uh, so there are three people there that uh, interacted with that uh, ended up meeting up with here at Burke again. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. so that was good. But uh, yeah, we, we did uh, expand then uh, at the plant in Kokomo. We stayed at about 140 to 150 and uh, uh, it was it was more like a family. And uh, but we did have problems uh, from time to time. People would always want more money and, and that. But uh, in the end, most people stayed with us. Uh, one of the things that happened, I, I remember that uh, I wasn't prepared for. Uh, I had an employee call in and say they were going to kill themselves. They were going to commit suicide. Oh, oh my God, okay. Uh, it was just, she was a single parent, had a 14-year-old daughter who was very unruly and, and uh, doing things that teenagers do. <laughs> and uh, then trying to support her and the work and everything. And uh, plus she probably drank a little more than she should. And, uh, but uh, it ended up, was able to talk her down and uh, get her back, uh, get her the help she needed and uh, get her back uh, at work. Uh, and uh, so that was a good thing, but uh, nothing would have really prepared me for that. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I had uh, an employee uh, we hired from Michigan and uh, he worked at uh, the largest cattle farm in Michigan. And uh, he very excellent, really sharp guy, excellent. And uh, about a year after we hired him, uh, he was standing outside the office I had and his eyes were all red. I could tell he'd been crying. And uh, so I was concerned that everything was okay with him, with his family and, and that. And so we, we sat down to talk and and he says, do you remember me telling you about the cattle ranch? And I go, yeah, I sure do. I remember how much you loved it there. And he goes, well, the owners have called me back and want me to come back and they want me to computerize things so we can track the cattle, we can track their feed, we can track all kinds of things and I'll still get to ride horses and corral cattle. And I was just so happy for him that uh, he was going to be doing something he really loved and uh, he was worried that we would be upset with him. But personally, I was so happy that he was going to be doing something every day that he, he really enjoyed doing. So unprecedented situations are a part and parcel of life. Yeah, it's it's a good feeling to know that, you know, you met somebody and, and they were able to go on and do something they really loved. But uh, from you know, just those 150 people we dealt with in that at our place. Uh, we also then in the DuPont era, we ended up building a plant in Ichan, Korea. And uh, when, when DuPont uh, bought us, uh, we had a little party and we had cake and ice cream to celebrate that uh, we're going to be DuPont and Photomass and, and uh, that, and uh, it was nice. And Dr. Raymond Yang was very appreciative for all the hard work everyone put in to become number one in the country and then DuPont purchase, purchasing us. But uh, after that, then uh, we started, we built a plant in Round Rock, Texas, which Mark Voris ended up going to. Uh, then we also built a plant in Ichan, Korea. Uh, a couple of years later, we bought one of our competitors uh, Ultratech in uh, Santa Clara, California. Uh, there, the owner of that company had, uh, I believe, five people that had been with him pretty much from the start of his company. 
And so they were very valued employees and stuck with him through uh, thick and thin. And so at their party, they had cake and ice cream also, but uh, he asked for those five people to come forward and he wanted to thank them for all their hard work uh, and making, putting his company in a position where they could be bought by DuPont. Uh, I don't know what DuPont paid for uh, Ultratech. I know for our comp our plant, they paid $40 million. But uh, this owner then, he said, I have a little uh, gift for you as, as a, a gift of my appreciation. And he handed each one of those five people an envelope and inside was a check for $1 million each. Okay. So, uh, so some of some of our people were a little upset that we didn't get anything. We got cake and ice cream, but uh, I thought, well, you know, we were paid to do a job, and and we did the job, did it well, and uh, but uh, so this fellow uh, was very appreciative, and uh, his his people there were uh, very lucky that uh, he was going to share a uh, million dollars a piece with them. He said, I'm already a millionaire, so here I, I want to share this with you. So that was great that he did that. Uh, we also went on to uh, purchase a plant in Nijmegen in the Netherlands, in the south of France in Rousset, and we also built uh, two plants in Shanghai, China. And uh, the, we built a plant also in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, which Fujitsu was going to build a plant there also. So we decided to build a plant there to be close to Fuji, Fujitsu. And uh, so we built our plant and Fujitsu canceled their plans for their plant. So uh, our plant never really got utilized at all. Uh, the last plant we built was in Dresden, Germany, and it was a state-of-the-art plant. And uh, so we had gone from the original eight employees to uh, about 2,400 employees worldwide. So it was always interesting uh, interfacing and, and working with some of the other people at some of the other plants around the world. Uh, some of our employees got to go to uh, those plants and, and help them get started and things like that. Uh, especially uh, we uh, purchased a software package that's uh, was, I guess it'd be like iLabs now. It seemed to be a little more powerful than iLabs, but uh, back in the uh, mid 80s or late 80s, uh, it was sort of advanced for its time, but uh, here I believe we pay for iLabs as a percentage of the money we bring in and, and that, but uh, there with this company, uh, it was $50 million up front. So uh, we sort of went from struggling early on and getting equipment and things like that to a lot of uh, diversification. Yes, a lot of diversification and uh, 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 nothing's cheap in the semiconductor industry. <laughs> Agreed. But uh, and then, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so um, how did you decide to join for you again in 2007? That is the part I'm particularly curious about. OK, yes. Uh, in uh, 2004, uh, uh, well, DuPont had spun us off in 1996 as DuPont Photomass. And uh, 
initially in 86, they wanted to diversify. And uh, so they were looking around for uh, companies to buy and, and some research group came and said we were a good buy. So we were with DuPont then for 10 years. And in 1996, they decided that they needed to uh, focus on their core businesses. So they sold off uh, Conoco Oil. They sold off, uh, oh gee, uh, one of the Seagrams, I believe it is. Yeah, Seagrams, they sold off Seagrams. And uh, they sold off several other companies and they spun us off on our own then also. Uh, so from 96, we were DuPont Photomass. Uh, and then in 2004, uh, they decided that there was a uh, too much capacity in the photomask industry. And so they started shutting down plants. And by then, uh, our headquarters in the U.S. had moved from Kokomo to Round Rock, Texas. And so they decided to shut the Kokomo plant down in late 2004. And uh, Topan in Japan bought uh, bought DuPont Photomass and uh, shut our facility down uh, and kept the uh, Round Rock plant and the Santa Clara plant open. Uh, I believe they realized at a year or so later that they shut the wrong plant down, but uh, because in Kokomo, things are fairly cheap. It would cost $3 million a year mm -hmm. to keep that plant open. Uh, the plant in Santa Clara was part, it was actually like within a, uh, a warehouse kind of facility. So it was sort of a makeshift clean room kind of thing and everything. And uh, it cost $9 million a year to keep that plant open. And so we never could figure out how they're going to make up $6 million, but uh, but anyways, it, it happened, and uh, so uh, they gradually uh, let people go there at, at DuPont, and uh, that's uh, then uh, I ended up joining Delphi uh, Electronics for a short while, and then uh, ended up uh, uh, Purdue was looking for someone familiar with e-beams, and uh, uh, so I interviewed for the job and uh, was chosen to uh, to join Purdue University then at uh, the new Berkman Nanotechnology Center. Um, so you've been at Purdue for a full 13 years now. How do you think Burke has evolved in this time? Yes, it's uh, grown quite a bit, uh, not only uh, equipment-wise, uh, a lot of amazing equipment here, and a lot of money has been spent uh, from the initial startup in that, and it's it's been maintained very well by Mark Voris and uh, the people. Uh, I've seen the staff has really grown also. We, of course, have a larger staff now than back mm -hmm. then, but uh, a lot of uh, excellent uh, uh, engineers, staff. I, I'm, I'm always really impressed by the uh, people I, I work with and their talents in that uh, with electronics, chemistry. They're just uh, very, very bright uh, people to work with and and uh, the good resources also. And of course, a lot of the professors are, are very good working with us also and uh, have a myriad of information and that to pass on to us and and help. And uh, and uh, oh my goodness, the, uh, the students, uh, you guys, uh, just uh -huh. tremendous. Uh, I'm so impressed by the, the quality of the students that uh, come through here. And I'm always interested in the students too and in what they're going to do 
you know, after they get their PhDs and, and move on. And it's always interesting, you know, because some want to go into research, uh, some want to uh, go into academia, and uh, uh, some want to maybe start their own companies. Uh, so it's it's a lot. Uh, it's interesting to hear uh, uh, one of our current students. Uh, I know he was talking that uh, one of the things he wanted to do was to go back to his home country and try and help uh, people there become more educated and show what uh, what you can do, what you can accomplish in that. And uh, I just think that's so great uh, that uh, meeting with with people from different parts of the world and everything and, and what they're going to do it's uh, uh, sort of a melting pot here and, and i enjoy that that very much finding out what what life's like for them uh, back home and uh, uh, one of the young ladies here i was asked her where she was from and she said uh, bhopal and uh, of course first thing that came to my mind in bhopal was the big uh, uh, Union Carbide disaster. They had the world's largest uh, 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 Yeah, the gas release of gas and what killed about 6,000 people and uh, who knows how many more uh, lingered on and died after that. But uh, but uh, luckily her family was fine and she was fine. Of course, that happened quite a few years ago before she was born. But uh, yeah, but it's just uh, amazing that uh, some of the people we have coming through here and and what their life was uh, like uh, that so uh, i've been very happy about working here and enjoyed it so much uh, and i think especially working with the students uh -huh. uh, so that's interacting with students or training them do you think it takes away from your primary role as a researcher no i i see that uh, uh, that is one of my goals in you know, duties also and so uh, every day when we come in you know we try and schedule uh, what we can for our trainings and all but uh, we also have equipment responsibilities also to try and get those up and running or or maybe we have have had an installation to do that uh, so we sort of have to balance things and uh, sometimes that's difficult because usually everybody wants trained as soon as possible and yeah. uh, but but if you've got a piece of equipment that's down that everybody wants up right away also, it's uh, challenging sometimes, let's say. But uh, we work through it and uh, like I say, we've got an excellent group of uh, engineers and a talented group uh, that uh, can usually get things up and running pretty quickly. So yeah, it was a very interesting journey. I mean, um, starting from Jocelyn Stainless to Poor University, I mean, spanning multiple decades. Mm. Yes. So yeah, let's move on to the next phase then. Yeah, <laughs> tell me more about your military experience. So you were in the Army National Guard for a solid 39 years. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, um, I, I started off in, uh, went to uh, 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 Fort Ord, California, which is by Monterey and Carmel, just uh -huh. about 100 miles south of San Francisco. So if the Army had to have a nice uh, place, uh, that was it. They still had plenty of sand and things like that, but uh, it was a good experience uh, there uh, at Fort Ord. So I was there for over six months. And uh, then when I came back, uh, that was infantry training. And uh, when I came back then uh, initially to Fort Wayne, uh, I would have to go to my drills in uh, Auburn, Indiana, which was about 45 miles north of Fort Wayne. Uh, then 
I would jump in a Jeep and drive to Southern Indiana to Camp Atterbury and then for the weekend and then on the way back on Sunday, I'd drive right by Fort Wayne, go to Auburn, clean up the Jeep and put equipment away and then drive back to Fort Wayne. Uh, when I ended up going, then getting a job at Delco Electronics in Kokomo, uh, I got tired of going from Kokomo to Auburn to Camp Atterbury to Auburn to Kokomo. So it pretty much chewed up the whole weekend. And uh, so I transferred to the artillery unit in Kokomo, Indiana. And uh, I was with them for a couple years and they uh, brought on air defense. And uh, so I was in a group that was in the air defense section there. And we were sent to uh, uh, Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas for red-eye missile training. And it was a shoulder fired missile is what you see in this top slide here. And that was at is the that white. No, that, no that, okay. that's not me. <laughs> that's just a stock photo there. But uh, okay. uh, but, uh, but uh, training there was uh, uh, some of the best I, I've ever had, whether it was in an industry or academia or, or military. Uh, part of the training then was to identify aircraft as to enemy or friendly. And uh, they had a big theater there. Uh, this, now we would consider that an IMAX theater. Back then, no one knew what IMAXs were in the mid 70s. And, uh, but they had one there. And no, no theater seats in it or anything, just bleachers. And you had 180 degrees around you, above and down to the floor and 180 from side to side. And a voice from the back would say, Sergeant Rowe, what do you want? And you could say, uh, uh, give me Hong Kong on July 5th uh, at 8 p.m. in the evening. Boom, there it was. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, and then you had to listen for an aircraft and you had to find this aircraft by looking all around you. And then you had to identify whether it was a friendly aircraft or a uh, enemy aircraft. And uh, many times you, you use this trainer, which is similar to what this soldier has there, uh, but it didn't fire a missile, of course, but uh, it would let you know whether it picked up enough infrared from the, uh, the uh, plane to be able to shoot it down or not. And uh, so many times after you go through these exercises, you would hear this, Congratulations, Sergeant Rowe. You just shot down one of America's finest filing pi fighting pilots. But uh, uh, so that was very interesting. And then they would also truck us out to the White Sands Proving Grounds. And uh, we also had our trainers and they had uh, jet aircraft from the Marines that would come in and fly over us. And, and uh, uh, even though when they first come in, they want to let you know that they're there. So they come in at about 350 miles an hour over the top of you, about 50 feet above you. And uh, there's nothing quite like the feeling of the ground shaking and this incredible noise and feeling all the backblast from these jet engines as they go over the top of you. But uh, uh, then uh, in about 1975, my enlistment was coming up and I had some friends that decided to check out the band. Okay. I didn't know there was a band and I played tuba. 
So uh, we all went down and checked out the band and uh, three of us from the Kokomo area ended up joining the band and and that's where I remained then for the, the remainder of my uh, military career. And so got to travel around the Midwest playing for uh, uh, parades and ceremonies, things like that. Uh, the photograph you see here of this brass quintet plus the percussion was actually taken here at the armory at Purdue. We were playing for a, uh, a ceremony there. So it was uh, a lot of great people and uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, so let's talk more about music. How long have you been playing the tuba? Uh, since about 1961, I believe. And uh, do you play professionally? Uh, yes, yeah, some jobs I get paid for, some I don't. It just uh, varies. Uh, it's a lot of times it's playing for the community, returning, doing things for the community. And uh -huh. uh, the top photograph there, I'm playing at a, uh, a 5K race mm -hmm. and uh, just providing some entertainment and some music for them with a, a brass quintet. and. Uh, down below, uh, that was after one of the concerts in Kokomo with uh, uh, the Kokomo uh, band, Kokomo Park Band, and uh, the three tuba players were all sitting there and posed for a photograph, and uh, we're all playing uh, uh, our big horns. We all bought, brought our biggest tubas with us that night, and uh, so, but, uh, but played in military bands, many brass quintets, brass ensembles, uh, brass bands, uh, wind bands. Uh, and there's a little asterisk there that uh, there is a concert coming up this Saturday at 2 p.m. at the Palladium in Carmel with the Indiana Wind Symphony. So uh, there aren't many concerts going on, but uh, the Palladium was big enough that we could uh, uh, socially distance. And, uh, and not all of us are on the stage, the winds or woodwinds, are mostly on the stage and the brass are up uh, above them in the choir area, all spaced out six feet. So uh, it's uh, where we're all glad to be playing again. Also play in a couple different symphony orchestras, Dixieland bands and uh, street fair bands. So it's uh, it's been a sort of an avocation, something I enjoy and uh, Enjoy making music with uh, other people. It's sort of like a, a team. You know, here we have teams or at work, you may have a team and uh, your group you with your professor may be considered a team and everybody pulling together in the right direction. And music is that way too. Everybody trying to do their best and work together. When I first read your biography, that was the thing that I was most amazed by. Oh, I did not know uh, somebody at birth played the tuba. <laughs> so since we are running a little short in time, let me collate some of the questions that our um, sure. audience has also posed. All right. So um, you have had a very diverse career. You have worked in the industry, uh, been in the army, and now you also interact with students. So out of all your different roles, which do you find the most challenging and which do you think is the most fulfilling? Uh, the most challenging is probably work here with trying to balance everything and keep up with technology. Uh, you know, here with the research, uh, we're always pushing technology, so it's uh, 
always a challenge to keep up with it. Yeah. So uh, uh, the challenges earlier in work were uh, meeting uh, goals that we had set. And so it was a little different, uh, not really uh, advancing the technology that much and doing research, but uh, production. Uh, at our highest point, uh, we were doing uh, off the E-beams uh, 40 24-hour turns a day, and that was always very stressful. Uh, but that's in part why we became number one in the United States after only like a year and a half. Uh, the other competitors thought there was a downturn in the photomask industry, but what it was was uh, those semiconductor plants were uh, sending us their designs to make for them and return back to them. We could actually do it quicker uh, than they could, uh, even though they were just down the street from the semiconductor plant. They could get it quicker from us being here in the Midwest than what uh, uh, they could get it, even though they're just down the street. So uh, those were always challenges. Okay. And which do you think was the most fulfilling role out of all of these? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> that's difficult to say because they're okay. so so diverse. Each one had yeah. its own special memories in, in that, but uh, so it's hard to choose just one mm -hmm. because they are so diverse. Okay. If you had to pick one, where would you put your money on? Uh, well, right now I'd say working here at, at Burke, mm -hmm. Purdue. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm glad you like working with us too. Oh yeah. <laughs> So on that note, um, you are, you attended Purdue back in the 60s and yes. you are once again here. How do you think Purdue ideologically or in terms of the interaction between students and professors or students and stuff, do you see a major shift in what Purdue was to what Purdue is today? Yeah, it, it is a little different. Now you have to realize too, I was at the uh, uh, Purdue University at Fort Wayne mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to visit that campus now, but it's really amazing what has gone on there. Uh, when I went there, there was one main building. That was it. They had a lot of acreage along the river, along the St. Joe River, and uh, but uh, it was just one building. And uh, back then, if we were doing programming in that, we had to log on to the Purdue main campus CDC 6500 to run our jobs. We had no standalone computers there. We always had to log on remotely to the CDC 6500. Uh, so uh, the uh, it was nice because probably smaller classes in that and uh, uh, we, we never really had any real large lecture groups like you see here. Uh, so, so some things were definitely different there than what they are here right now. But uh, that campus has really grown and it's uh, beautiful. And uh, uh, I always enjoy going by there and just taking a drive through whenever I'm back up that way, visiting friends and family. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I know w one thing, uh, I did also take a, a couple courses at uh, IUK and the Purdue part in Kokomo also. Uh, they had a very small Purdue representation, but. Uh, one thing I, I found out from one of my colleagues who was taking some classes at IUK, uh, one of the professors there, I, I'd never heard this from any professor, but his professor told him and the class that he wrote his name up on the board, 
and say, I am professor such and such. If you see me out of this classroom, if you see me out at the grocery store, if you see me out shopping, if you see me out to park, do not speak to me. I will not talk <laughs> okay. to you. I will not talk okay. to you. If you need to talk to me, make an appointment. That's the oh, only wow. way I'm going to talk to you. And I thought, gee, that's, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just that didn't quite, harsh. I didn't understand that. And I've, I've ne never met any professors here that had that kind of an attitude or anything, but uh, I'll have to say that was probably an IU professor. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hope I didn't offend anybody that's IU related there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're good, don't worry. So uh, one of our audience has asked, um, what was it like working across the globe in different countries? Uh, it, it was uh, interesting for our people. Um, initially, I was involved. We Instead of us sending people to Korea to the Ichan plant, we brought people to uh, Kokomo. So I was able to host some Koreans and, and do some training here. And uh, again, it was interesting finding out what life was like for them and their families and their children and and uh, the work also. Uh, uh, also, we had uh, when we built the two plants in Shanghai, China, several people were able to go there and uh, uh, hearing uh, some of their stories when they came back, uh, it was interesting. Uh, they had great hosts there for them and everything, but uh, we, we had one fellow that I, I'm not sure why they sent him there. He was uh, 40 years old and they sent him to Shanghai, China, and he was with a couple other people that went, but he had never had rice in his life. Mm, okay. And so they would, of course, host them and take them out to dinner or lunch and he would just sit there he wouldn't eat because he didn't want to eat anything <laughs> so the restaurants would have to send somebody down to a mcdonald's to buy him a burger and bring it back <laughs> i thought why are you sending this guy there <laughs> he shouldn't be there but uh, but uh, the other people who were there really enjoyed their time and made a lot of good friends uh, with the people in uh, shanghai uh we also did some collaborations with a, a company in Japan. Uh, there were three main blank manufacturers and, and photomass suppliers in Japan. Topan, Photomass, uh, 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 Hoya, and uh, Dynapon. And we were doing some collaborations with Dynapon and uh, we thought we were pretty hot in Kokomo having four e-beams at the time. Mm -hmm. So we had about 20, 24, 25 million dollars worth of e-beams sitting on the floor. And the fellow from Dynapon, I asked him, I said, well, how many e-beams do you have at your facility? And he goes, uh, uh, 37, <laughs> 37 e-beams. <laughs> All in one facility. Oh, wow. All in one facility. He says pretty much that's, we yeah, have. That's impressive. Uh -huh. We pretty pretty much have an engineer assigned to every beam. Mm -hmm. That was sort of yes. eye-opening too. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me close with one final question. Um, since you like interacting with students, what is that one advice you would want to give to the uh, future researchers or current researchers at Burke? 
Uh, well, uh, I think a couple things that I've known just taken from my career was uh, uh, the people that I interacted with early on. Now we've also all met up here again at, at Purdue. And uh, so, uh, you know, those collaborations or contacts that you make early on may help you later on in life also. And so it's always good to remember some of those people and what you were doing and interacting with them and uh, also trying to uh, work together as a team to help each other. Uh, I, I feel our jobs here as, as uh, engineers here uh, to, to help the students and whether it's uh, with uh, equipment and processes or training and things like that to try and make them successful. So try and make uh, the people around you successful. So networking and teamwork. They're networking, both very yes, important. absolutely, okay. yes. Okay, all right. Yeah, thank you for talking to us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it.